It's February 2nd, 2022, and welcome to the new reality edition of Bite Marks Cafe right here on Hawaii Public Radio, where we serve you the first bite of today's science, technology, and innovation. I'm Bert Lum. First up, uh, I've invited Brian Dote from Tapiki back to the show to help us understand what exactly is Web3. And of course, then we'll be joined by Pat Sullivan and uh, Ian Kitajima from Oceanet, and uh, they're here to tell us about how things are going with uh, you know taking a, an idea, a great idea, and developing it into an international company. And I'm really interested to hear some of the uh, the challenges along the way of that path. But now I want to welcome back uh, to the show Brian Dote, and of course he's with Tapiki. And you know I noticed that he recently changed his Instagram handle to include uh, digital equity and Web three. So I, I just felt compelled that I had to ask him to come back to the show to explain what exactly is Web3. So, Brian, welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe. Wow, thank you for having me. I guess Instagram <laughs> really does work. <laughs> hey, you know, I'm, yeah, for some reason, your, your account just comes up first on my, you know, on my Instagram feed. So I'm oh, always looking at it. algorithm. Yeah. <laughs> you must have tweaked that algorithm. Hey, so... You know, I, I, I like the fact that you've got digital equity in there. You've got uh, Web3. But, you know, I've, I've been hearing kind of bits and pieces here and there about Web3. And, you know, as we all have grown through the Web1 and Web2.0, and, and now I guess this Web3 is entering into our vernacular. Uh, just to recall, uh, what was, what was Web2.0? Yeah, so you ready to walk down memory lane, Bert? Sure. Uh, Let's quickly go down Web 1, 2, and 3. Okay. So uh, Web 1.0 was like the original web. Uh, if you remember, we actually started with browsers that couldn't even load images. Um, there was no video, no imagery. It was text-based. I remember in college, all I could do was look up movie times and some news articles. Um, but Web 1 was all about hyperlink information static web pages linking to other static web pages, and, and that was sort of the information highway or superhighway. Right. I remember um, using uh, Pine and FTP. Yeah, Pine. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Those are the days. Um, <laughs> so then Web 2.0 came around, I would say early 2000s, and, and its exact timing is subject to debate, but Web 2 was the, the mobile social cloud internet, right? It was where in Web 2, you were the product. You created content for social networks, um, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and these big companies monetize your content and your data um, in your community to, to make their revenue. And so some platforms paid creators, others didn't. You know, you can make a ton of money on YouTube, for example, but Facebook isn't paying you to post to Facebook or Instagram. Um, and in the mobile social cloud web of Web 2.0, brands really leveraged all your personal data. Right. You know, targeted targeted marketing, outreach, customer retention, uh, marketing automation. All those pieces were based on who you were, what you did, what you shared, what you clicked, what you bought, etc. So that's that's the state of affairs as it stands today. Web 2.0, the large internet giant controlling all of that. Mm -hmm. And. What's exciting about Web 3.0, or Web 3, as it's called in, uh, commonly, is that it's the decentralized Internet. And I'm going to go quickly over a few of its components. But um, in Web 3, as opposed to Web 2, where you are the product, in Web 3, you are the platform. Because in a decentralized Internet, you control your data, and you control all of the pieces, uh, sort of your digital footprint. 
And I just want to preface that with saying, you know, Web3 is pretty abstract. Mm -hmm. It's like this collection of technologies clumped together, kind of smoothed over the ugly parts and call it something. And we call it Web3. It's still a lot of different nascent technologies. Um, but I'll, I'll go over a few of those. Yeah. These, these technologies really make this decentralization possible. Um, so some of the key components of Web3 is uh, decentralized finance or DeFi. And, and, you know, this is done through things like Ethereum, which allows smart contracts. And so you can create actual financial investing instruments um, without a central authority. So that's, that's one, one component of Web3. Mm -hmm. And this is my take. Um, you know, Web3 is ever evolving. So by the time this show airs, it's probably changed. <laughs> we'll, we'll go with what I have. Okay. <laughs> Sounds good. Um, a second piece of Web3 is NFTs and, and virtual goods. Um, I'm sure you heard all the buzz, both positive and negative, regarding NFTs. But that's a, a key component to um, the Web3. It's uh, underlying assets are not interchangeable with NFTs, right? They're unique tokens, um, and, and there's a whole economy around that. Mm -hmm. a, a third piece of Web3 is decentralized governance. And I'm not sure if you've heard of DAOs or uh, decentralized autonomous organizations, but using the same technology as Ethereum, you can create organizations that are autonomous um, with no central authority where smart contracts and bits of code and algorithms kind of govern how things are managed, um, which includes sharing of wallets, um, voting rights, uh, membership, and all those other things. Wow. The last two, quickly to go over, Web3 is uh, decentralized cloud services. So today, we all know Amazon, Google, Microsoft, they own this space. Mm -hmm. But some of the protocols um, in Web3 allow the edge computing to make it beyond those and, and to perhaps your neighbor's computer or a computing center down the street. Um, it kind of decentralized, decentralizes cloud services. And the last one, which is really important, I think, is the self-sovereign identity. And this is where you and I, the individual, has control over our own identity. Because right now in Web 2.0 world, we don't control, authorize, or actually have any say in the dissemination of our digital credentials, right? And when you see all of these leaks of um, usernames and passwords, we have no control over that. And we actually have uh, no control over the brokers who manage our login credentials. So with um, self-sovereign identity, the idea is to put that control back into the hands of us. Mm -hmm. and, and those five pieces, as you can see, the theme being decentralization, um, all kind of bundled together and lumped up, make up what, what is uh, Web 3.0. Now, in the five that you just mentioned, uh, you did not mention blockchain. Does blockchain sort of fit into the, the first oh, yeah. one, Ethereum? Sorry, definitely. I think blockchain, you can con consider it a layer where many of these other things are dependent, integrated, or made possible by. Okay, okay. So it's yeah, a fundamental a critical, yeah. critical piece. And in terms yeah. of Web3 and, and it actually gaining traction, uh, like you said, it's it's sort of early in the in the days of its evolution. But what are some of the things that you will keep your eye on in terms of, you know, um, its demonstration of, of gaining traction and actually becoming, uh, you know, established? Yeah, I think uh, I, I think it's something that I, I want to caution people. It's not going to appear overnight. It's not like you come into your kitchen 
flip the light switch and boom, on your kitchen table is Web3, mm-hmm, right? It's mm-hmm. going to happen in fits and spurts in different industries. But if you keep your eye on what's happening in uh, decentralized finance um, and the cryptocurrency world and NFT world and virtual goods and all of this as it swirls and morphs around the metaverse, and that, that might be a topic for another day, um, is, is the areas that I'll keep an eye on. Well, very good. You know, and, and uh, I, I, I think we could have a whole show on this. And, and as you just mentioned, even even having uh, the topic of the metaverse could be another aspect of uh, this evolving uh, Web3, which, you know, I think is going to be a very dynamic thing. So, hey, Brian, uh, you know, mahalo for, for sharing that. And, and where can people find out more about uh, Web3 and, and uh, perhaps uh, are, are you as uh, Tapiki getting getting kind of involved from a business standpoint? Yeah, yeah. From the, I, I know we're out of time, but from the equity standpoint, from enabling people to um, be successful and, and create opportunities in this space is where I'm headed. Um, I can share some white paper links with you after this so you can share with your audience that uh, people can read up on the Web3 world and, and some of the kind of the leading publications in that space. That sounds great. Yeah, send me those, and I'll put that up on our show notes for later on. Mahalo, Brian, for joining us. Awesome. Thank you, Bert. And, of course, we'll take a short break, and when we return, we'll be joined by Pat Sullivan and Ian Kitajima, and we'll talk about the COVID test kit and, of course, how that idea turned into something much bigger. This is Bite Marks Cafe. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Honolulu Waldorf School. Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe on Hawaii Public Radio, and I'm happy to welcome Pat Sullivan, founder of founder and CEO of Oceanet, all the way from Patagonia, and of course, uh, Ian Kitajima, Chief Technology Sherpa over at Oceanet, and and they're all here to tell us about uh, the, the the journey that they've been on with this uh, COVID test kit. And, of course, I want to welcome you both to Bite Marks Cafe. Thank you, Bert. Thank you. Thanks for Hello. having us. Now, you know, I mentioned uh, uh, Pat, uh, you know, he, he's not in Patagonia right now, but <clears throat> 36 hours ago he was in Patagonia. And I, I really appreciate the fact that, uh, Pat, you uh, – Made it all the way back to Hawaii, and 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 the first thing back, uh, you know, on on Hawaii ground, you you're calling into Bite Marks Cafe, so I really appreciate that. Thank you, Bruce. <laughs> and of course, Ian Kitajima, you know, he's like a regular, uh, and and it's always uh, great to have have Ian on the show, you know. So, <clears throat> you know, we've 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 actually talked about the COVID test kit and and how Oceanet really took an idea and and uh, you know we all harken back to the time of uh march 2020 and and we're all in a new reality of of uh you know stay-at-home orders and and i think uh it was uh, an interesting pivot on on your guys part to really you know delve deeply into the idea of oceanet creating a covid test kit so you know maybe pat why don't you give us a, a quick <clears throat> you know like how did this begin, and and then and then I kind of want to get into the the path that ha- this has been on for the last, you know, I think a better part of, uh, I don't know, twelve to sixteen months. So, how did this idea come out, and and why did you think Oceanet could actually get into the test kit business? Well, you know, it, when I think back, uh, it has been quite a journey. So we we started. And for those that are listening, um, I'm going to walk through some of the 
steps and ideas, but this is all pretty much following the, the book I put out last August called Intellectual Anarchy, mm-hmm. The Art of Disruptive Innovation. So it started out with this idea that we could create an artificial intelligence to understand and address things like cancer. And the idea was to use a linguistic Turing machine model to look at genetic code more like a language. So think about it as an American alphabet is 26 letters. Letters are basically symbols. When you assemble them in a certain way, it has a meaning, you know, words, sentences, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So we started on this journey, and one of the programs that we worked with was a group called DARPA, Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, where we proposed that we could create a, a tool set we call the grammar of RNA, which allowed us to design molecules with purpose. Mm-hmm. So these are organonucleotide molecules. And the idea was, you know, to come up with a causal connection about why do things happen in biology versus what's typically done in medicine today is correlation. Right? If 100,000 people smoke cigarettes and 100,000 people don't correlate the data, conclusion, smoking isn't good for you, as opposed to what's actually going on so it was kind of this lofty question, as I kind of talk about in the book, the way a lot of these things start. And we were successfully creating this really amazing tool set. So when the, when the pandemic hit, we thought, okay, we've got a multi-year program we're trying to work toward with this big goal. But in the interim, what if we take the tools and apply it to designing a molecule which could specifically react to uh, part of the COVID virus? which we did, which was, you know, very remarkable. Now, mind you, we got this group of people. They're all very bright, you know, a lot of, you know, molecular biology and, and virology and physics and astrophysics and all kinds of things. This was no little thing to be able to produce this. Then we had this kind of daunting question. Now we're going to make them. And we have a small, you know, we have labs in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. And they're really excellent labs for what we do. But then you run into this question of going to scale. <laughs> right, by right. scale, yeah, it's, it's, it's one thing to do the science. And then when you get to the scale question, it's like, oh, my God, you know, I need a facility with controlled humidity and a clean room. And I need all these things. I, can, I mean, I can synthesize these molecules with a 3D printer type system, which is really amazing. But to scale it. You know, we looked at trying to build the infrastructure here, and the and the time constraints and the other issues were, were pretty big, but there's no reason why we couldn't do it here under normal conditions. But then what we did was we, as we'd been collaborating with companies in Korea, we found an interesting company that wanted to work with us because we'd really created an entirely new platform technology and had successfully designed a molecule using this method, and that alone was remarkable. But then we got into this question where how do we work with this really amazing group, which was focused more on veterinarian types of applications and other things, but they had all the basic pieces. We're going to teach them what we were doing. Then we realized, because, you know, we don't speak Korean. Every time you fly, you got a 14, you know, 10 to 14-day quarantine. Mm-hmm. It became a real 
difficult problems. So we thought, what if we understand what they're really good at and then adjust our technology to match what they're good at? And that turned out to be a really good idea. And so they produce, you know, we kind of run a factory there specific for what we've got using what they're really good at, and that became our test. But then the next big hurdle was going through FDA approval. And on top of that, when you do an FDA approval, you've got to have uh, quality systems, documentation, managing supply chain, and on and on and on. So what we did was we've got, a, again, 25, 30 people have been working on this, but a, but a couple of young, early 30s, very smart, one doing clinical, one doing uh, manufacturing supply chain. And they just weighed into that. So on the clinical side, we had to set up clinical testing across the country to collect samples per the guidance of FDA. And we, we put that together, submitted it, only to discover one of the what are called uh, their reference labs. One of the reference labs we were using was out of compliance, which rejected some of that data. So we redid it collected the data. Again, this was in Florida, California, Wyoming, several other, and, and Hawaii. Mm -hmm. We did collaborate with Queens and University of Hawaii, so we had, we had some good support. But we submitted that. That was in the very beginning, um, end of October, beginning of November. And then came a variety of other things that you know we weren't quite thinking about at the time, at the time, Omicron wasn't considered a big thing. But when they would ask us a question, we had 48 hours to respond or we would be kicked out. This was the FDA in Maryland. Mm -hmm. So every time, it's kind of like running a marathon with a series of sprints. And one of the last ones we did was they said, you need to get so many Omicron clinical samples. These are collected from humans and do the genetic sequencing and send us the sequence data 48 hours ago. And so <laughs> we collected data. We had different series of sets of data. Fortunately, we had plan A, plan B, plan C. One of the big, you know, aha moments was we're sending or sequencing the samples to a lab in Austin, made the mistake of sending it through Memphis, which was FedEx, Memphis, of course, um, turns out to be a bad idea if you're trying to be swift about it. And so our samples got spoiled, but we had backup samples, and we had somebody get on an airplane Sunday night, fly nonstop to uh, Austin, walk into the lab at 8 in the morning. They ran the samples there, and we got back to FDA, again, all within 48 hours. And, and as of recent... Uh, they, they asked for what we think is maybe the final thing. This was uh, a week ago, last week, Monday. They want to look at our uh, instructions for use in the Word file to see if there's any final tweaks. So we expect to get approval um, really any day. We've, we've, we've nailed every single step, um, produced all the data, exactly documented. All the quality systems are set up in a web-based thing to manage supply chain. It is perfectly auditable, so they can check any of these steps. 
not only here in Hawaii, but all the way through the supply chain, including our partners in Korea. So it's been a long journey to get to this point. Our long-term goal is to first, we're trying to look after Hawaii, schools and businesses and that kind of thing, and make sure there's ample supply. The second, there's huge global need for this. And we've got inquiries from across not only the United States, but outside the country. Pretty much everybody is interested in acquiring these tests. It's a really good test. Simple, you know, when you design these things, you've heard a lot about design thinking, where we are drinking our own Kool-Aid. So simple, easy, stupid, make it work, make it work well, so anybody, anywhere can use it and get the right answer. So we got a really good test, and we expect uh, to hear, again, any day now. Well, you know, I, I, yeah, no, I I was hoping that... uh, this uh, auspicious, you know, two, 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 two would have been the day you could announce it right here on, on Bite Marks Cafe. Now, I, I do want to uh, give Ian a chance to share a little bit about, you know, what the management of this process from Korea all the way to, to Florida might might be like. Uh, but we'll hold that thought. We'll be right back after this uh, a short break to continue our conversation with Pat Sullivan and Ian Kitajima from Oceanet. This is Bite Marks Cafe. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Ulupono Initiative. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe on HPR One. I'm Bert Lom, and if you're just joining us, we're talking to Pat Sullivan, founder and CEO of Oceanet, and Ian Kitajima, chief technology Sherpa over at Oceanet. And, of course, we're talking about the journey from idea to product delivery uh, for this uh, COVID test kit that's been, uh, you know, being worked on. And, and the, the, the path that uh, Pat just described, Ian, is quite, quite arduous just in my, my thinking, you know, to manage a piece of it, uh, a key piece of it in Korea, and then also managing uh, this whole process to get the FDA to approve and uh, as Pat was saying, I mean, there's you know there's pieces of this all across the country uh, that has to be managed, and I'm not I'm not saying you're you're the project manager, but uh, Ian, what was your kind of observation along the way as to some of the challenges that that uh, this process faced? Hey, Bert. Yeah. So, <clears throat> I mean, I think Pat described a lot of it. I, you know, I think the fact that. It takes so many people from so many dis- disciplines. Uh, you know, if you just think about it too, right? You know, you know, you talk about you know, there's the accounting people, there's mm-hmm. the legal people, mm-hmm. the administration group. You know, when you know you start production or any of these things, there's so many different pieces. Um, as Pat described, I think, I think at one time there was, you know, I, I think there was upwards of like 30 plus people and from different parts of the organization involved, and. You know, I think part of it is is staying in sync um, and just having, again, you know, I think the hardest part sometimes is is if you're not careful, you make a bunch of assumptions, right? You're thinking somebody else is doing it when, in fact, maybe they're not, or you're thinking, you know, maybe that's not my part, so you're not doing it. And so, um, you know, I, I think just getting everybody, um, you know, coordinated and informed and because if just one piece is not kind of happening, that may be, um, you know, the piece that kind of slows things down, right? Or gets in the gets becomes a becomes doesn't look like an issue, but down the road becomes an issue. So I think one of the big challenges too is just to think ahead, um, 
way ahead. Uh, you know, I think the pandemic makes us think that we're in a, kind of a sprint, but in fact, it's a marathon. And so this, this, uh, the development of a product, right, is very similar. It, it's, it's kind of a marathon. And I think we, we, you know, we're all sprinting. Uh, and so at times it just feels like overwhelming because we're just, you know, you're having those high moments and low moments, uh, <laughs> as, as you know, as, you, as just even just going through the FDA approval process, that by itself is like, um, it's like another Mount Everest, you know, trying to develop a test kit was like climbing Mount Everest for the first time uh, when I talked to people and going through all of that, um, you know, I think what was really key in the early days was, you know, somebody had to call the play and, and that's Pat, you mm-hmm, know, mm-hmm. Um, because it's not like, like the, the company is waiting around for more things to do. Everybody is, you know, a hundred percent, you know, like engaged. They're already working on other projects to, so to throw this one out and say, okay, we're going to climb Mount Everest. Uh, only Pat, only somebody like Pat can actually call the play mm-hmm. and, you know, bring everybody together. Right. And, and get us all organized uh, and get going. And that's kind of how it starts. You know, somebody, somebody's got to be um, the visionary and that's what Pat does. And then the rest of the team starts filling in uh, as we kind of figure out what our roles are uh, and start playing this, you know, we always use kind of the jazz analogy, but it kind of is like that, right? You start figuring out maybe where you can help and where you can add value and and that we're on this very long journey, right? And uh, once we get the FDA approval, the um, it starts another journey. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, and, <laughs> it's and, you another know, Mount Everest. You know, this is, <laughs> now uh, you got to scale up. You know, scale production and yeah, figure yeah. out all the logistics and what do you do when a shipment you know is delayed or it's defective? Right, right, right. right. So this there journey is not is not over. And you know, I I'm I'm just impressed with. Uh, with you, Pat, and 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 Ian, and Ocean, at uh, just staying true to the, you know, the the mission, uh, because all along the way, I mean, this could have been so daunting that you guys could have thrown in the tower towel at some point in time and said, "Oh, this is too tough. We can't do this." Well, oh, it's, yeah, you know, it's, it's <laughs> kind of like coaching a team in the Super Bowl. I mean, we know we're we're outgunned. They've got better uniforms. You know, they got better equipment, but we've got this commitment and this drive, no matter what happens, to keep going. And it never would have happened without this amazing group of people. I mean, and and that's a that's an understatement. You know, people getting knocked down, getting back up in the game. Well, right? you know, Pat. That's what it takes. Pat, I'm, I'm, we only got about a minute, but I know you have a quick comment to say about how we can perhaps do more of this in Hawaii. Yeah, I, I think it's important to realize that, that geography isn't the central issue. It's the desire to do something and getting the team to work together. This is all about innovation. And if we want to diversify the economy, which I think is a good thing, we still want visitors, but we can do so much more. And the talent we have, these are mostly local folks. They're super smart. They're fearless. They're hardworking. And it makes me proud to work with this team every single day. Well, that's great. And, you know, I, I will definitely want to keep track of this uh, FDA approval and the journey that Oceanit is on with this test kit. 
And uh, we will continue to tell this story because I think it's a great story and a great example of how Hawaii can do more than what is currently being done and, and diversify this economy. Pat Sullivan is the founder and CEO of Oceanet. Ian Kitajim is the chief technology Sherpa over at Oceanet as well. And, of course, I want to thank them for joining us today. And, of course, thank you for listening to Bite Marsh Cafe. Join us next week when we'll learn about the true initiative and how they're helping the IT workforce development in Hawaii. If you missed any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on bitemarkscafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, feel free to email me at bitemarks at gmail.com. You can also find me on Twitter. I'm at bitemarks. Our engineer is David Chong. You can catch us on HPR1 every Wednesday or anytime via the HPR app, iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. You stay safe. You stay awesome. We'll see you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe. Bye.